It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Bill Kennedy, CEO of OTC and Arrowhead Engineer Products. Bill is a global business executive in industrial, engineering, and consumer products. He aligns with key stakeholders to set a clear and compelling vision that will rally the organization to drive growth, control costs, and increase profitability. Bill also develops strong leaders and management teams and establishes relationships with customers and stakeholders. He has led organizations that are publicly traded, ESOPs, and private equity owned. Bill resides in Sarasota, Florida, and will be releasing his first book, Profitable Growth Operating Systems, Take Command of Your Business Now, in February of 2024. Bill Kennedy, welcome into the corner office. Well, thanks so much, Brian. It's great to be with you today. Ah, absolutely. And uh, we're just back from uh, Memorial Day uh, weekend not too long ago. It seems like in the distant past already, but uh, what part of the world do we catch you in today? I know you do a lot of commuting in your job. I do. I do. Actually, I'm uh, in my home off today in Sarasota, Florida. Sarasota. All right. Well, I'm just across the coast over in North Palm. So uh, greetings to you on the other side and hope you're having the same beautiful weather we're having here today as well. Well, it's beautiful every day in, in Sarasota. We, <laughs> we've absolutely doing great. Thank, thank you. <laughs> Love to hear it, Bill. Well, we always like to start uh, hearing a little bit about uh, you know our CEO guests early years. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up off the coast of North Carolina mm. in a little teeny uh, farming community called Richlands. And uh, uh, it was a wonderful place to grow up. You know, I, I always tell you, it's, it's so true. I, I grew up at the end of a dead end dirt wide, or dirt road in a double wide trailer. And, All right. uh, so, uh, but, but what a, a blessed place to be from, to say the least. Awesome. Mom and dad, uh, what kind of work did they do? So my dad was basically a handyman, right? He had a little HVAC work he did. He did um, uh, also truck driver, things like that. And my mom uh, cut hair for a living. So she had our own beauty shop. Awesome. Awesome. Brothers and sisters? I got one sister. She's a little bit older I am, older than I am. And she also lives still in North Carolina in something that I think probably uh, qualifies as a crossroad. It's a town called Maysville, North Carolina. Okay, cool. Cool. What were some of the early memories you have from those early years? It sounds like it was a, a nice growing up area and a, kind of a somewhat rural area, would you say, from a farming community or were you closer to the coast? Yeah, absolutely. We were about uh, about 30 minutes from the coast, but it was very much a, 
a farming community. It was by a big military base called Camp mm. Lejeune. Yeah. And uh, we used to, in the summers, we'd go down to the beach and things like that. But uh, I typically worked during the summer. So I worked in, we, we called it putting in tobacco. And what's, what that meant was you worked on a farm and you worked in tobacco fields. And most of the kids I knew did that sort of thing. And then when I got a little bit older, about 15, I got a job in a grocery store. And I was at a place called Pollard's IGA, which was uh, oh, yeah. owned by a guy named Tommy Pollard. And that was my first job off the farm. And I was uh, I uh, stock shell, bag groceries, took it out, whatever they needed to do. So it was it was really a, a wonderful place to grow up. To, uh, you know, it was kind of small town America, I think, at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, that the, the town had about a thousand people or so. I'm not not sure it's much bigger than that today. Maybe may, may, maybe a couple thousand people there. So right, uh, right. learn a little bit about hard work during those days, Bill. Did you? You did. You really did. It was funny. You know, we we had very modest means to say the least. So my mom would take us shopping for for uh, for school, and that's when you got like you want a pair of tennis shoes. These are the ones you got, right? <laughs> the, the pair pair of jeans. The brand brand names weren't, weren't that big of a deal. If you wanted something else beyond that, you had to go earn it yourself. Right. And, and right. that's uh, that that's why I got a job and made some money so I could get some of the things I wanted. And what were some of those things? You know, my my first thing I ever really truly wanted was a car, and uh, so I was about fourteen years old. And, uh, and, uh, you know, living out in the country, your, your car was your, your key to the world. And at that time I had a, a 10 speed bike and, uh, I was working in the fields and, uh, and got, like I said, when I turned 15, got a job and my mom would take me back and forth to work. And, uh, and as we would go, we'd pass the Ford dealership and right. in the used car lot was a right. 1977 gold Trans Am, the kind Ooh. that, uh, uh, Smokey and the Bandit had right. Burt Reynolds, his was black, <laughs> mine was gold. I had to have that car, so uh, so uh, it was uh, five thousand dollars, and I saved up and got the down payment, went out and uh, bought it. My my parents code signed with me, and wow. I became a formal working man. I love that. I love that. At, at the what the ripe age of sixteen or so, when did you start driving there? Little, Absolutely. Little, little, well, in North Carolina, you. Uh, you uh, you couldn't get your license till you were sixteen, which I think is pretty common uh, across right. most places. Right. So yeah, so I got my driver's license, got my car, and uh, went back and forth and kept bagging those groceries. And the funny thing that North Carolina had, which I I think is very unusual, they don't do it anymore. But at seventeen, uh, if you had a good driving record and you kept your nose clean, you could be a school bus driver. So oh. I actually drove a school bus. We like I said, we lived out in this little farm and we had places to park it and. Mr. Johnson, who was the, the vice principal in charge of that, he'd come out and he would inspect them and do all. You had to wash it every month or so, sweep it every day, <laughs> wax the front end at least once a year. And, uh, and uh, that thing was that thing would go all of 35 miles an hour. Wow. And, uh, wow. I'd get up in the morning uh, at 17, and my route was about an hour and a half long. And so I'd, yeah. I'd leave about five, go out, pick up all the other kids. I, I had elementary kids and elementary. pick them up and, and get them to school and, then after school, we kind of, kind of reverse and go home, get in my car and uh, go go bag groceries for the evening. I love it. So speaking of school, were you a good student? You know, I was OK. I was I was really active and uh, I played sports early on, but but you could time me with a calendar. So I was tough and could take a beating, <laughs> but I was slow as I could be. So as I got into working and stuff, I kind of dropped away from sports and got more active in school clubs. So when I ah. graduated high school, I was president of my student body and yeah. uh was on a lot of you know clubs and things like that, but just a typical typical student. And I graduated in the probably the top quarter of my my class, and uh, you know B's and A's things like right, that. Right, right. What were some of the sports you played before you got discouraged with that? 
Yeah, so I played football, and I was a lineman, and, yeah. and I was the right tackle and uh, and left tackle on defense. Small school, so when you're in a small school, you can play any sport you want, right? You still, right. still be good, but they always had room for us, us, us not very good kids. And uh, <laughs> I played baseball uh, uh, as well early on, but it was mainly football and baseball is what I did. Right, right. And what were some of the clubs you established? Well, you know, like I said, so I was uh, I was uh, in the student government, and then I was also heavily involved in the school annual. So I was the uh, art editor or whatever. I drew the pictures for the annual myself and some others, and ah. things like that, and helped lay it out. And uh, I think if you go back and look at the annuals on the on the front of it, there's a design that I actually drew. Believe how about that? Awesome, awesome. Some artistic facilities too. Got it. What about entrepreneurial things, Bill? Anything you're involved with, uh, you know, other than obviously what you stated already. I'm, of course, you know, bagging groceries, of course, kept you busy. And that was probably a good paying job back then. I remember when I was in high school, that was 10, 15 bucks an hour, if I recall. Oh my gosh, you must be way younger than me. So I was making <laughs> like, uh, let's see, I think I was making a dollar seventy-five uh, working on the farm. Uh, and then if you hit certain things, you got two bucks. And then when I went to work for whatever reason, I'm probably wrong, but I think it was like two dollars or two two dollars and twenty five cents an hour. And then uh, as a bus driver, we got paid a flat rate, and I want to say it was a couple hundred bucks a month. But uh, right. but I did have a bunch of little entrepreneur things. So uh, you know, this was the days when you got and sell everything. So I remember my first sales job. I was like fourteen, and uh, I got a. A thing you go sell Christmas cards. I'd walk up and down the roads that we lived on and go knock on these these you know neighbors' doors and I'd sell them Christmas cards. They would, they would be uh, personally they put their name on it and all that. And sure. I don't remember now what it was, but you know you make a couple bucks. So I was always out selling something, doing doing that sort of thing. I you know I was kind of a kid that had a big mouth and wasn't very shy, and uh, so I'd put myself out there. It's it stood me in pretty good uh, pretty good stead through the years for I sure. I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, you went on to university, Elmhurst, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, was that kind of you know pre conclusion that you decided early on? Was it something mom and dad encouraged you to do? What what led you to university? Yeah. So no, great question. So uh, so I got out of high school. We were like I said, dirt poor. I had no idea what to go do. So I joined the Navy and okay. uh, joined the Navy. Uh, I went around, got to see the world. It was truly the best thing I ever did in my life. It, yeah. it got me kind of settled and got my feet on the ground, did that for three years, got out, moved to Chicago. And uh, in Chicago, I met my my future wife, who we've been married with 31 years this yeah. year. I have, Congratulations. Thank you. I have no idea why she puts up with me, but she does. <laughs> and uh, we've uh, we've got uh, uh, now two two beautiful daughters who are grown, and one of them's getting married uh, March 9th next uh-huh. year, twenty uh, 24. And my other one, uh, who, uh, just turned 23, gave us our first grandchild this year. So, uh, we are, we are so blessed in that, but, uh, but back to your question. So when I went to Chicago and I met my wife, I, she was a school teacher or becoming a school teacher. And, uh, and, uh, so she was in her final year at the time and we got married and started having kids. And I thought, man, I, I wanted to do more. I I felt I had more in me than just being a sales guy. And, uh, I, I love being a salesperson. Don't get me wrong, I made really good money, met wonderful people, and just it was amazing. But I wanted to do more, so I uh, went to Elmhurst. Uh, I uh, well, really, what I truly wanted to do was I wanted to get my MBA, and I wanted to go to the University of Chicago, which is we were living around Chicago at the time, and it was one of the best in the world. And I knew if I could get in there, uh, you know, it would it would really prove I was more than 
than just a pretty face, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, it's true. I have a, I have a face made for podcasts. So, uh, <laughs> so my buddy was, uh, was, uh, had gone there and, uh, he gave me access, uh, to their, um, they called it, believe it or not, Facebook. It was the uh, Facebook before Facebook that sure. we've all come to know and right. love. And so I went in and I researched and I realized that what I wanted to do was, was what was the uh, what was the best local school uh, that had the uh, to get me into University of Chicago? So I did research and I realized at the time it was called Elmhurst College. I realized that was it, and they had sent at the time five people to the University of Chicago's. At, it was called the Graduate School of Business. Now it's called Booth, of course. And right. and I thought this is it. So I applied. They were gracious enough to accept me. And what a wonderful experience, Elmhurst! I'm telling you, it's just changed so many lives and. You know, how the circle closes is today I actually sat on the board and I'm the chairman of their investment committee. So yeah, I right, uh, right, get to right. give a little bit back there. But yeah, I went to right. Elmhurst, graduated summa cum laude. So I don't know how to pull that off, but I did. And uh, and walked out of there and walked right into University of Chicago and uh, went and uh, got my MBA. And uh, it was just it all came together. So I had married a beautiful woman, had two little babies and yeah. uh, and got myself an MBA. So. That's awesome. And then did you work during your MBA period as well then? Did you start in a career or, you know, go straight into full-time schooling, right? Once you came out of Elmhurst over to Booth. Yeah, I worked the whole time. I went to school at night and weekend. So Elmhurst had this program. And uh, since I was uh, uh, ex, ex-military Navy, they, you know, they, uh, you know, they had programs for folks like me. So I went nights and weekends there. I uh, graduated and I went into the uh, Chicago's part-time program. And at the very end, I uh, went full-time in it for, for, for about a year. I, you know, look, I, I had a mortgage and kids and, you know, yeah. shoes to buy and all that. So I had to keep, keep paying for them uh, while I, uh, well, while I was doing it. But that last year, so funny. I tell people today, I was like, I graduated out of University of Chicago with $112,000 in debt. I was like, how in the world? <laughs> Am I going to pay this stuff off? But, right. uh, but we did. And, uh, at the same time that I graduated, my, uh, my wife went back and got her master's and, and, uh, it's so funny. She's such an amazing woman. We, uh, she was uh, pregnant, uh, at, at the time and went on bed rest. And so she's wow. on bed rest going and getting her master's in education. I'm in the middle of my master's and how we put all that together is a mystery, but uh, <laughs> but we were blessed and supported each other, and that's really what it takes, right? If you're going to accomplish anything in life, you got to have a great partner. Your family's got to be there, and and things like that. And I got great support through my support uh, my uh, employer as well, having some flexibility uh, to go. So it uh, somehow or another it all worked out. So who were you working with during those years? So I, work, I was working with a couple of uh, different companies. So so I uh, uh, primarily was working with a company called Sackner. Uh, which is a private equity owned company up out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and just a, a wonderful organization there. And uh, then uh, as I went into the uh, end of it, I, I transferred to a company called Invensus, which was Invensus. where yeah. my uh, buddy was working at, which is this big old global company uh, that was uh, owned. Uh, it was a European company and they were headquartered in uh, Canary Wharf, which is over in the UK, over, over in London. And uh, were you doing sales jobs at that stage or getting into managing businesses directly? Tell us a little bit about those first jobs. So I had been a salesman all the way up until the point of Invensus. And when I went to Invensus, you know, I'd got my degrees and the managerial stuff. And I moved into like a director of product uh, 
uh, marketing. Then I took over uh, design engineer and some other things and round up uh, running around the components group of it, which was really uh, valves and pumps and actuation and all sorts of just highly engineered products. Right. Did you have some leadership responsibilities early on there? I did. I did. I see. I had about probably 20 people under me, primarily product managers, marketing and engineering at that right. time. And, uh, you know, Invesis was a, such a tremendous place to go to, uh, you know, in, when things are, are really stable in life, it's hard to, it's in a company, it's really hard to get an opportunity. But if you go into a place that's having difficulties, right. uh, you are growing fast or challenges or anything like that, you really get a shot. So when I went to work for Invesis, like I said, it was this giant company, about $25 billion uh, in annual revenue, but they were having tough times. Yeah. And what that was a result of was they had went and bought, I don't know, probably a hundred different companies. And the wow. CEO was a guy named Alan Yurko. And uh, they realized that uh, they had not got all the tax stuff right, I guess. And so mm -hmm. they owed money all over uh, the world. And uh and so what happened was uh, we basically got cash calls that we had to go pay and Invensys started selling stuff off. And mm. uh, so myself and other leadership team, we went from really running the businesses, which we keep kept doing, uh, to we had to help go sell the businesses. And that was really my first taste of truly getting uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions, doing deals around businesses. And uh, so we... Uh, uh, you know, I got to I got to see two different sides of it. I got to right. you know see the side of not only do, how do you go make the products, but I got to see the side that was you know how do you position it out in the market? What are people looking for? What do buyers get excited about? And uh, I learned so much. What were some of those leadership lessons you learned during those years, Bill? Well, a couple of things really stand out. So the first is it's really all about your team. You're going to get mm -hmm. all sorts of things coming at you, uh, and uh, and there's no way you can do it by yourself. I remember this is so. So silly, but it sticks in my head. Uh, I remember I got promoted and I got this bigger group. I became that director of product marketing, as you remember. And and I had to put together the budget. So uh, I'm in late working and I'm kind of by myself. And it's, it's got to be nine or 10 o'clock at night. And this building we were in was cavernous. It it was you know, a million square foot type of thing. It was just massive. Wow. And I, my little office and my boss, for whatever reason, a guy named Bruce Burwell comes by and goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I got to get this budget done. And I'm trying to figure out, like, I don't remember now, like, like, like what their, their, uh, you know, their, their cell phone bills are going to be. He goes, you've never done this before. I go, no, I've never. he goes, just have them tell you. <laughs> I go, wow, that, it was such a revelation. I'm like, yeah, they probably really go I ask should, that question. Just go ask them. Right? It, was so, it was so funny. So, so the first thing is, is it's the, all about the team around you. You need to communicate, be open and candid with them. Hey, this is what's going on. And it's so amazing when, when that happens, people want to be part of it. What right. If you find yourself trying to convince people, this is not the right place. You're not doing the right way because if you sell them, if you convince them they've got to be part of it, right? They're going to blame, blame you when things go wrong. But if you come in, you say, look, I need help. This is going to be difficult. Right. Right. This is going to be hard for us to get through. They understand it. They want, and they, people, people typically want to opt into it, believe it or not. They like being a part of something bigger than they are. So so as we went into that and my team was coming together and we found out that the company was in bad shape, you know, having having that uh, that open and honest conversation made all the difference. And later on, I realized it was called the Stockdale Paradox. And oh. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. I'm not. Yeah, tell us about that. So uh, so Stockdale Paradox is uh, goes back to an admiral by the name of James Stockdale. And 
and uh, and he's truly an American hero. And 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 I think I'm right on this is I believe he was the longest serving, highest ranking uh, admiral ever captured in Vietnam. You know that oh. Hanoi Hilton and all that. Jo- John McCain was there as well at the time, so it was kind of all that uh, all that going on. And most people today, if you remember, all you got to be a, a certain age. Most people today would associate him with Ross Perot. When Ross Perot mm-hmm. ran for president back in the 80s, uh, uh, Admiral Stockdale was his vice president. He stood oh, up on the stage. Right. Yeah, I knew I'd heard the name. That's yes, he stood on the yeah, stage, yeah. and it's quite funny, and it was kind of sad because he was in his 80s. He said, he goes, why am I here? You know, they were doing <laughs> typical political crazy stuff, and and uh, and so he got remembered for that. But what he's really known for is just being this extraordinary leader and war hero and so uh, when he came out of uh, out of uh, as a uh, hostage, right uh, from yeah. from it, they interviewed him and they said, Admiral Spock, Stockdale, you this is this is extraordinary. You made it when 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 so many didn't, right? Like like uh, like what what do you attribute it to? And he goes, Well, that's easy. He said the optimist died first. I'm like, Oh my gosh, what does that wow. mean, right? And what he said was, people would come in. He said, This is horrible, right? These are terrible, terrible circumstances. And they would come in and they would say, you know what? I'm going to make it. I can deal with this torture and, 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 and this terrible uh, uh, situation. And we're going to be home by Christmas. And you know, Christmas would come and go and they weren't home. And then they would say, well, it's New Year's and then Easter and Fortune and it would go on and on. And when it didn't happen, they would lose hope. They would lose faith in it, right? He said the people who made it recognized two things. One, they knew they were going to make it. They knew they were going to make it. They knew it was not going to be easy. It was going to be horrible. It was going to be the worst thing they'd ever seen. But they knew they had it inside of them to get through. Those are the people who make it in life, right? Hmm. And that's what it is with teams. When you bring people with you and you read them into what's going on and you tell them, like, this is not going to be easy. This is going to be challenging. It's going to take everything you got, but we will make it through them. Together, you can get there. And that's that was really the beginning of it with me with Invensys as we went through this, what was a very challenging time. It was a wonderful company. They owned amazing companies, uh, uh, but they had financial difficulties, uh, nothing to do with the local business, just the way it was structured. And that meant there was going to be change for everyone. And people right. don't really like change, right? right. Uh, particularly if it's unknown. And uh, so bringing them together, making part of the team for where they're putting your budget in, selling a business or going through turning a company around, getting people with honest buy-in makes all the difference. Yeah. They, they like progress, but they don't like change. Nobody <laughs> likes change. You know, I, today I go around and, and, and I, I tend to go out and I spend a lot of time out in the field with my folks and, and all that. And I'll stand in front of them and I'll say, particularly if it's a turnaround uh, and I'll say, look, this is not going to be easy, but we are going to get through it. And people will, will ask questions and, and you know, you 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 know that they want are just hoping that it's finally going to settle down. Right. But they also know we're not in a good spot, right? And and so I'm very candid. I'm like, look, if you the one thing I can guarantee you, the one consistency is absolutely going to be is going to be change. But we're going to get through this together. Mm-hmm. And by being candid and by being frank and being honest, when they can tell, they'll go with you, right? Yeah. Because grass isn't greener. Every place has trouble, right? Sure. They know that. They know it in their personal lives. They know it here. They just don't want to be what they feel is lied to. It sounds like there's a certain amount of vulnerability as well, Bill, that's required. Would you say that's true? I think so. You know, it's funny. I've realized this through time that uh, that uh, running a business is no different than uh, 
just running your own personal life, right? You got to keep your debt under control, be able to pay your bills, keep everyone going in the same direction. And so when I talk to people, I try to talk to the level whoever I'm talking to. In other words, there's no need to talking to all sorts of fancy things if you're if you're talking to people who worry about putting food on the table, right? right. There's no need of talking to uh, above or below or someone else. And people get so caught up in it. I just come in and, you know, I just try to remember my audience, talk about what's going on and make it personal to them right. and make it right. make them understand what we're going on. I don't expect them to 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 care the fact that the business is struggling. But I want them to know that this is affecting them, which they clearly do. I know they want more. I know they want more salary, want more time off, better benefits. We want to give them all that, but we got to be able to afford it, right? There's no magic bucket of money sitting around with a ladle that we can just go dip into and out it comes. We have to go earn it and we have to earn it ourselves, just as we do in our own personal lives. Same thing in the business. So people respect it and can get their mind around it. But the vulnerability that you spoke of is exactly on point. Yeah. What about mentors, uh, Bill? Did you have any along the way, maybe early in your career? And if so, tell us a little bit about some of those. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The only reason I'm in the role I'm in today is people have taken a chance on me and I've mm. tried to do that for others, right? I go all the way back to my parents and you know everything from my mom. My mom was a hardworking woman, really kept the family together. Very modest, right? My my mom and dad, they got, my mom was 15 years old when she got married, which was not right. uncommon at the time, but right. holy heck, that's still pretty young. So yeah, <laughs> it yeah, was, uh, uh, but she was a tough woman and uh, really taught us everything. My dad was the consummate salesman, right? He made everyone feel good about themselves. So mm. that meant my mom was always trying to keep him under control and, and going from there. But I, I learned that hard work and honesty from my mother. And then, you know, other ones I remember, uh, so we used to go, I grew up in the South, as I, as I think I said earlier. We did a lot of hunting and fishing and things right. like that. And uh, we used to go hunting on Camp Lejeune. And one day I'm walking through uh, one of these fields they have where they do what's called maneuvers, right? Where where the Marines would go out and spend time. Well, when they weren't there, they made them available uh, to local hun- you know, hunters who wanted to right. come out. So I'm walking, right. I'm walking along. I look up, this little short guy's coming at me. Now I was pretty small then too. I was probably 15 or so. And this guy's coming up and, and we start talking and, and, uh, he's clearly a Marine and, but he's dressed in just normal hunting garb. It turns out he, his name was Al Gray, who later became the commandant of the Marine Corps. Well, he wow. was the commanding general of that base. And we struck up a friendship and I think he was just being kind to a skinny kid. And, uh, <laughs> and we stayed in contact for, for years. He, he passed away not too long ago, but, mm. uh, what an extraordinary, uh, human being. And he would tell me stories you know, when he, he grew up, he uh, he was what was called a maverick. And, and that means you come in as an enlisted guy and you uh, and then you go on and become an officer. So he right. always kept that humbleness about him. He always kept his common touch. He talked to everyone he went to and he treated people with dignity and respect. And, and I learned so much from that. It didn't matter the fact that he was in charge of that whole base. You know, he didn't walk around to some little kid he didn't know and go, well, do you know who I am? He was just right. another guy. And, right. and I always remember that. And I try to conduct myself that same way as I walk through. I, I know I'm the CEO. They know I'm the CEO. It doesn't matter, right? I'm just a right. person who's doing the best I can. It's really the team. The team gets everything done. And if we can get them together and, and treat them with dignity, respect, uh, and give them opportunities, uh, that we can accomplish amazing things. And the other thing I tell people all the time, you know, particularly, we look, as you know, as we all know, we went through a pandemic and you know, last time this happened, I think it was back in the 20s, 1920s with Spanish flu or whatever it was, but uh, it was terrible, right? Something that no one alive I'm aware of had seen before. 
I tell people, you, you don't know what others are going through, right? right? Try to have a little kindness in your heart. Now that we still got to get the work done, but we don't know what folks are going through. And, uh, and so people for like Al Gray and my mom and, you know, and everyone else through the years have really made a difference uh, for me and just how you treat people. And yeah. uh, I think it, it makes a big difference. Sounds like a little bit of empathy, right? Kind of developed that over the years and being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. That's true. I've never been accused of having great empathy, but I'm working on it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes I can get so caught up and I got to go get this done. And, you know, when you're running these businesses, you know, make no mistake, the goal is to grow them and, and make profit. And, you know, you can make all sorts of arguments. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's wonderful, right? The thing that makes this country so amazing is we make things, right? right? We take things. We're one of the last places in the world that a little country boy growing up at the end of a dead-end dirt road can make yourself all the way to CEO, right? And the reason we do is because we have opportunities and we have businesses that take things and make them into something unique and special, and it brings us all together. You don't see that in other countries, right? You go to China, it's a wonderful place, but look at what they're going through, right? Europe, another wonderful place, right? But they don't make very much, right, in these, these types of things. It's uh, uh, this country is something unique and special. And anyone who doesn't feel well, I just encourage them, go check out the uh, alternatives. I think right. I think you'll find, well, this is not perfect. It's the best game out there. And we're yeah. blessed to be here. So you talked about both being mentored, but also mentoring others. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the mentoring that you do. What are the kinds of things that you think, you know, younger executives, men or women, you know, need today? What, what kind of things do you pour into them? Help you develop their career. Yeah, it really makes a difference for uh, for the folks uh, out there, right? So I think I was thinking about this the other day. I had uh, I'd had a similar question, and, and I believe there's about fifteen or sixteen people today who are setting presidents or CEOs that I I help put them in there. Now they did all the work. Don't don't. I'm not taking right. any credit for it, but I gave them that opportunity. It's what they did with it. I was talking to a very good friend of mine, Bob Deekman, and. Bob, when he came to work for me, uh, was the uh, CFO, the chief financial officer of this wonderful little business we had called Rotex. And uh, uh, one thing led to another. We needed a new uh, president and we put Bob in there. And today, Bob is now in his third president and CEO role. And he and I were catching up. He goes, you know, Bill, you you gave me the shot. And I was laughing at him. I was like, yeah, I have all my regrets, Bob. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but man, what a great guy. He's done so many things. You know, and what I've learned is it takes two, right? So if I take everything I've got and I try to help you, and if you take everything you've got, you try to help yourself, we maybe have a shot at this, right? But you you shouldn't expect someone's going to hoist you on your back and carry you across the finish line, but you shouldn't expect you're going to go across it you know, alone either. None of us got anywhere by ourselves, right? And uh, it's important to remember that and give something back, right? Uh, but, uh, but some of the things I look for and folks who are doing that, I look for this you know, I look for people who are grateful, right? People not grateful to me, but grateful for the opportunity. Sometimes you come in and people have this sense of entitlement. I've got the right education. I came from the right family. I lived in the right place. I went to the right schools, all these things, right? It's I've earned it, right? I don't always find that works out very well because <laughs> no matter Black how humility. blessed yeah. you've been, it's hard, right? Yeah. And, uh, uh, but those who come and they struggle for it, they work hard, you know, like I said, I went to school at night. I had kids. You know, I made a lot of good decisions, but I made a whole bucket full of bad decisions. And uh, somehow or another, I struggled my way through it. And my family supported me and my bosses gave me shots and, and all that. So I look for people who haven't had 
perfect uh, careers, uh, uh, but they've overcome it. You know, one of one of my uh, 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 most favorite. Uh, 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 it's not a poem, but it was a speech that was given by Teddy Roosevelt called "The Man in the Arena." And uh, you know, I often reflect on that, and I look for that in myself, and and I look for it in others as well. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with it or not, but it's it's uh, it's always been one of my things that I uh, that uh, just just helps me think about what the kind of person I want to be and and uh, right. those around me. Yeah, well, that humility is important, isn't it? Right. It you really know, is, you know. Grateful, it's, but also, you know, not uh, not feeling entitled. Well, you know, the way you get humbled is, uh, you know, the way the way the way you get good at something is by making a lot of bad decisions and living <laughs> through it, right. right? So the way you right. get humbled is you realize that, uh, hey, someone goes, oh, look, here's your rear end, have it back, because I've just uh, <laughs> beat the life out of you. And uh, so, uh, so yeah, so humbleness, you get that by. By not always doing it right, but you got to be able to brush yourself off and get back up and get back in there. You know, it's it's so funny. I I uh, I was I was reflecting uh, uh, on this. I was talking to a friend of mine, and in his youth, he had this terrible incident, and it always kind of haunted him. And mm. and uh, and that, now he's you know he, he, he's uh, he's at the end of his career, and he was telling me this story. He said, you know, so this happened when I was a teenager, and and I was listening to him, and. So he went back when he was when he's in his his, his uh, 30s and and he thought everyone in town was going to be pointing him oh look there goes the the scarlet letter if you're uh, familiar with that book at all and uh, he said he went he said no one even cared he said they didn't even remember who he was right so so these failures that we all experience typically are bigger in our own head than they are to anyone else right yeah. we got to put that behind us Let accept it move on yeah. can't do anything about it move on yeah. you're exactly right Brad I love it. Well, Bill, we talked a couple of weeks ago, and as I mentioned at that time, you're the first CEO that we've had running two, not one, but two billion dollar companies. That's uh, true. Both, from what I understand, are both owned by the same private equity firm, if I've got that right. T tell us a little bit about, you know, Arrowhead and, and OTC and kind of how you got there. Yeah, sure. So OTC, I've been there just a couple of years now, yeah. and it's a, a wonderful organization. Uh, it's in its headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. We'll do just about a billion dollars this year, maybe a hair or two over it. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I got there. It was it was bought by a company uh, called GenStar, a wonderful private equity company out of uh, out of San Francisco. And honestly, you know, on the outside, all private equity firms look the same, but when you peel it back, they're all vastly different. And right. the thing I love about the, the, the team I'm there with, yeah, I work, work for a guy named uh, Rob Rutledge is probably one of the best guys I've ever worked for is that they bet on the, the leadership and the strategy. And so, so to give you a shot to go out and do it. And so when we, when we got to OTC, it was having tough times. It was part of the pandemic. Our pricing was out of control. Inflation was was running rampant. I always mm -hmm. tell everyone we weren't at the crash site, but we could see it from there. We were going to show up right in the center of the crash zone, probably 30 minutes before the ambulance made it. Right. right and, right. Uh, but you know, we, we got the team organized, we got the business organized and over about 90 days, we, uh, we got ourselves aligned around where we were going. We spent about $30 million putting people processes and technology in, and we didn't spend all that money at once, but that was what we committed to. We hired a, about 180 people. The company has about 1,800 people in it to give you wow. kind of a size of scale. And we turned it around, right? We turned it around because people believed, right? We put a clear vision in, with very clear action items. I run a very specific process on business. This is, 
one of the, you know, the bad thing about being old is you're old, right? The good thing about being here though is we got some experience. So I, right, right. I run a very straight, I call it the hundred day process. And, uh, uh, which is there's certainly no original. I think uh, FDR uh, ran his 100-day process. And so we've all been using that term ever since. But basically, it consists of just four simple meetings. It's a uh, uh, your first meeting, you get a line around the goal. The goal is typically a number. And we don't make it up. It's just whatever it is uh, that it needs to be successful. So it's tied to covenants and other things that the banks and their returns and the investor groups want. So it's a mathematical uh, piece, and, you, and it's obvious what it's going to be. The second meeting, which happens about 30 days later, is around the strategy. So what strategy do we need in the business in order to achieve that monetary goal? That starts getting people excited because they start to see it and feel it, right? And we're working like busy beavers here, but it's crazy little ants running around to get it done. The third meeting, again, all these meetings are about 30, 45 days apart, uh, is uh, uh, what structure do we need in order to go do the strategy? I, I find that's where most companies fail is they know what they want to go do, uh, but they don't reorganize themselves to go do it. They just tell people to work harder and take on multiple jobs. But we want people to do less and get focused. So the structure is super important. And then the final meeting that we have is uh, is then what are the actions that have to happen, the tactical ash mm. actions that have to happen that we're going to go do. So that's our early on strategy process, our strategy deployment process. It's very tactical, but it gets the business turned really quickly. I started August 9th. We had it done and launched uh, December 16th, and we launched it out to the company with it. We sure weren't perfect. We didn't know everything, but people knew exactly where we were going. We had communicated all along, and most importantly, we had brought the team with us, right? So it wasn't Bill standing up there saying, this is how we're going to go do it. It was the team uh, with you know, deep experts saying, given where we are, this is what we're going to go do. 18 months later, that business that was at about 700 is over a billion wow. and uh, and is, is doing very, very well. So the team's happy. It's growing faster than it ever has been. And and we just got really blessed. Uh, so that was that was the first company. I'm still doing that, still working on that. Got a really strong team and, and they make it happen every day. The second one's a new company. And that one's uh, it's not new to me. It's not new to the to the world. It's been around about 60 years or so in various forms. Uh it's a company called Arrowhead Engineered Products, and that's out of Blaine, Minnesota. Okay. That was about a billion and a half dollars. And what they do is uh, power sports products, uh, uh, ag products, everything from they would make golf carts and the accessories uh, to the engines that go in scooters and motorcycles to you name it. Right. We also have businesses that uh, make like uh, rider clothing if you're a motorcyclist and stuff. So right. very, very broad, but still very simple engineered stuff that uh, keeps the world moving. And this happens to be in a lot of recreation sports and agriculture things and, and things like that, outdoor power equipment. So similar situation. Uh, business had grown dramatically over the last three or four years, had gone from three or four hundred million dollars, the team that was leading it, I had got it up to about a billion and five billion six. And we have about 3,200 employees and wonderful group, absolutely terrific products, everything that you want to see, but they got a little bit ahead of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So myself and and uh, my CFO, uh, Adam McMahon, that we were asked to come in and help. It's a, it's a sister company. It's something that you normally wouldn't see, like you said, uh, a person leading across both organizations, but it's working out great because we got great people and and we're going through the same process. So we just went through our first meeting. I took that one over uh, April 10th and uh, we uh, just went through our first 
uh, a piece of, got our goal clear and we do our strategy work uh, coming up next week, in fact. Uh, well, actually this week. So 7th, 8th, and 9th, we'll all be together uh, work, working through what's it going to take. And it's not as if we don't talk in between, right? We have meetings every day about getting through. So this is these meetings are really just milestones that we have uh, and uh, uh, to keep ourselves on track. But mm-hmm. uh, but the strategies, again, are, are, uh, are appropriate and aligned. And you may ask, how can you do it so quick? Well, remember, these businesses already exist. So we're not saying let's go from motorsports to restaurants. It's just how do we get focused on what we need to do in order to yeah. achieve the objective? So that focus. So yeah, that's how we do it. Yeah, that's awesome. Bill, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Well, a couple of things are super important, right? So the first is you really want to have someone who uh, who has the qualifications to be there, right? When I say that, it doesn't necessarily mean a degree uh, or a specific experience, but you want them to be qualified. They got to have the ability to go do the job. And most importantly, you want them to to want to go do the job. Remember we talked earlier, I, I like people who feel grateful for what the opportunity is yeah. and also know, know, uh, you know, know the industry or whatever. We, we can teach people products and all that sort of thing, but we can't teach people hunger. We can't teach people ethics. Right. We can't teach people that ability to get up out of bed and go after it. Right. So you gotta be raised so, that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You gotta be raised that way or something's gotta happen. You know, maybe, maybe you lose a few times and, right. uh, mm-hmm. and you dust yourself off and, and you get back up. So, so we do that. We look for that, and and uh, uh, and and we get those people in, and we make sure that they are surrounded by other people. So if you have a if you have a group and you have really strong technical knowledge, really strong technical knowledge, but you don't have a great leader who can get them fired up and get them out there and can run with the process, and that's what you go look for. If you have a group that has uh, maybe not a strong technical knowledge, but maybe are good good athletes. The people that you bring in have to have really strong, specific knowledge. So you try to balance that out. But the the first we look for for ability, right? The ability to do the job. One second we look for that uh, gratefulness that I want to be part mm. of. This is something I can see myself in. It makes me better, right? They're thinking it's going to help me in their career, uh, or help, uh, help themselves in their own career. Right. Uh, uh, we we look for on that. And then the third piece is we look for people who can just dedicate their whole mind, body, and soul on. These jobs are hard. We go fast. We have a lot we got to go get done. And that means, uh, you know, it's hard to have uh, have great uh, work-life balance. You work a lot. Uh, they know that showing up for it. And uh, and given those other two, they just typically where they want to be. It's not for everyone for sure. Uh, but if it's if it is for them, it is the most rewarding experience to, 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 to be with a, a group of people who are all focused on really not only just looking after their own career, but being part of something bigger than they are, something that's going to help not only themselves, but help those around it, right? People like to win. They like to be part of a winning team and they want to be part of something where they feel like they're giving back. And if you can create that kind of atmosphere, boy, you got a tiger by the tail. Now, do you have a favorite interview question? Because that's kind of hard stuff to get at in a half an hour or 45 minute interview. Yeah, you know it's interesting. So uh, I have a, I have a couple things that I, I look for. So when I was in in uh, grad school, you know they they taught us all these uh, these these clever little questions when we would interview, like uh, like uh, why are manhole covers round? Now, Brent, <laughs> do you know why manhole covers are round? I have no idea, Bill. Well, there's there's probably unlimited reason, but all you're looking for is how people think, right? So uh, by the way, I'll give you the answer. So there's a few reasons. One, when they're round, they cannot fall inside. Right. Mm-hmm. So a square manhole cover can fall. You get it all killed, poop, 
right to the bottom. These right. things weigh a ton, right? So one right. to second is they can be moved by one person and get it on the edge and roll it, right? right. So things like that. But there's always these questions that that uh, that you're talking. It depends on the level you're interviewing for. I it's not a question I would typically ask my COO or my CFO, <laughs> but early on it's kind of kind of fun. One you have a little fun with it, and you know how would you find a needle in a haystack? How how many ping pong balls? Who cares about really what the answer is? You're just looking for how they can how think. They can but think. Yeah. yeah, and uh, it's it's really interesting. But really what I look for is I want to understand about them and what got them here. And what I'm looking for is those same type of things you asked me. Like, tell me your story. Who are you and why is this special? Because we're going to send you all around the world and you're going to have a company credit card and you're going to have thousands of people that report to you. I want you to know, I want to know that you have their best interest in heart but at the same time, you've got to be able to go out and do the mission. And so, right. so when you're in these roles, you have to be able to have two competing thoughts in your head, right? I must achieve my goal, not at all costs. We don't win at all costs. But at the end of the day, right, it's we've got to give exceptional opportunities for our associates. We've got to be great partners to our suppliers and our customers. And we have to give a superior return to our investors. That's the three. We have to go do each and every one of those. And no, not one of those is more important than the other. In order to do that, there's trade-offs. So I look for people who can understand the magnitude of what they're doing. So I love to read. And, and one of the books that I, I really is uh, really enjoyed uh, uh, years ago was a book called One Bullet Away. Mm. Did you read that one? No, I have not. So it's a book about a Marine uh, lieutenant uh, right out of college. And in fact, it, strangely enough, it's also from the 60s. And he wrote this book and, and it kind of became a little bit of a counterculture book at the end. But mm. the early part is really what I uh, what I uh, what I think about. So the Marine Corps and remember, I was a Navy guy, so we, right. we hauled them around. But I grew up by the Marines, so I have a special affinity, uh, certainly for them. The Marine Corps does two things. So you're you're a 21 year old lieutenant and, and you've got just a small group out there with enough fire fire power. Uh, uh, to blow the world apart. Right. Uh, and these are kids 18 years old, right? They, 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 they can't even drink legally. Right. So, uh, so it's an un unusual conundrum. So what the Marine Corps focuses on is two things. One, teach you proficiency with your tools, right? You want to know how to use your weapon, how to use your shovel, how to use whatever you got. And then the culture, when to use the weapon, right? right. When to go, because they're going to take that lieutenant, that very young man or woman, uh, and these young soldiers and send them around the world. So what do they do? They cross train them. They make sure that they understand the weapons, but most importantly, when to do it. Right. Mm. And that stuck with me all these years. So when you're a leader and I'm hiring people on my staff, I'm looking for people to understand our culture and how they're going to go do it. And that they are part of, they want to be part of something bigger than they are. It, you know, making it about themselves, not helpful, right? Yeah. The second one is they need to be proficient in the tools. So we run certain things like we use 80-20, we use talent development processes, we use lean and all this other. Those are all just tools, just like a carpenter. You, you know, same, all carpenters have a hammer and a saw and things like that, but they have this blueprint of what they're going to go build. It might be a mansion, it might be a condo, it could be an outhouse. So we have tools that you can build anything with. It's using those tools through the framework of our culture is how we're successful. So I look for people who can make it about something other than themselves, know how to use the tools and want to be a part of culture like this and want to make it even better. So that's really what I focus on. Love it. Love it. Great stuff. Bill, you've been very generous with your time and we're just about out of it. But we always have one last question we ask all our guests, and that's 
what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone that maybe has their eyes on the corner office someday? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. You know, it's so funny. Uh, I, I think if you want to be a CEO, I think there's there, there's a couple of types of people out there. You either want to go do this or you don't, right? Because it's hard. It's hard on so many ways, but mostly it's hard on your personal life, right? Yeah. You're gone a lot. You're busy a lot. You put in hours. It may seem from a distance like, oh, my gosh, if you're the CEO, it's a life around. It is an absolutely wonderful life, but there's prices to be paid. No matter what you choose, whether you want to be at the beginning, right? You want to take and be sweeping the floors, which is a wonderful, terrific job. All the way sitting in the corner offices, both have problems. Just make sure you pick the set of problems you're most comfortable with, right? Right, right? So that's number one, right? Understand it, right? The second with surround yourself with people who are going to make you better. Right. So if your people, if they're all your buddies and friends that you hang out with, like to go out every night, you're going to be out late and all that. You might not be uh, putting in the hours that's necessary. These things take a lot of hours and these types of things. So surround yourself with people who support you, make you better. That's all the way from your your family uh, to your friends to wherever you go, practice your religion. At. Make sure that these things align with who you are. Right? right. And the third piece is go out and bet on yourself. Right. Mm. Make sure you put yourself in opportunities that it will give you the type of, of, of career, type of lifestyle you want. For me, I knew, I thought I knew what I wanted to do, and it turned out that was what I wanted to do. So I had to bet on myself. I went to college at night. I spent time away from my family. I did all these types of things, and today I'm so grateful for it, and I'm so grateful that it all worked out. But it's ultimately because I placed a bet on myself, and I went out there. Do not expect anyone to give it to you. You have to go out and earn. You have to go out and earn the right to grow, uh, and, and if you put yourself uh, in the right spots, surrounded by people you care about and you're willing to put the effort in, holy cow, you can accomplish anything. Words of wisdom. Phil Kennedy, CEO of OTC and Arrowhead Engineer Products, thank you so very much for sharing your story into the corner office. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to be with you today. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.